You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome. If I have not met you, uh, my name is Riz, a pastor here at Reality Honolulu. And uh, just love being with you guys each Sunday to get in and study God's word together. And uh, just really expectant to hear from the Lord today. And uh, if you have been with us, you know we're in the book of Exodus. We've been about a month in, and uh, there are times on Sunday mornings where there's larger swaths of text than others. Sometimes we go through a little bit, sometimes we go through a lot in, in, in one day. And uh, on the longer weeks, when we're going through like a chapter or more, we're kind of switching it up a bit, changing it a bit, and having different people from the body come read our text from the day. So um, I want to have all of us open up to Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to be reading through uh, chapter 6, verse 13 today. So Exodus 5, uh, 5 1 through 6 13. And uh, if she's in here, because she is serving in kids today, Mo, you're right here. Okay. Uh, this is Mo Lim. Let's give her some love. Welcome her up. She's one of our amazing kids teachers, amazing human. And uh, she's going to be reading our text for today. And if you don't have a Bible, um, it's going to be up on the screen. All right. So Thanks, let's Mo. get right on into it. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, Yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. 
When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of, this, of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will, free, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord." Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Oh, one more. <laughs> now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Thanks, Mo. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> Great job. Well, this is uh, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And God, we want to place ourselves under it because we recognize it as the ultimate authority over our lives that it's truth, that it's infallible, it's without error, and it's profitable for us for correcting and teaching and for reproof and training us in righteousness so that we would be adequately equipped for every good work. And God, we want, we want that this morning. We ask that your word would go forth and we would glean from it, that you would reveal yourself in it. God, thank you that you are El Shaddai, God Almighty. And it's you who we are going to hear from today. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do so. You'd speak to us through your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I grew up in the 80s. I'm a product of the 80s. And uh, my favorite TV show by far was The A-Team. I don't know if you watched The A-Team. I kind of watched some reruns, but I watched it all the time. I was like an A-Team fan. If you don't know about The A-Team, let me tell you about it. So the A-team had these like four guys. There was Murdoch, B.A., Face, and Hannibal. And they were like veterans, and they were really good. They were like military guys that were out of it. And they were kind of like, they were running from the law. But they were falsely accused. This is the whole intro. 
I should have just played it for you. But what happens is, the premise of the story, every single episode, is people are in trouble around the world, and they somehow get in contact with the A-team. And these guys come in, because they got big hearts, and using the skills that they had in battle or whatever, they like come up with these crazy plans, these crazy ideas, they modify cars, they explode things, and at the end of the show, always, obviously the A-team comes through, every problem's always fixed. But it's this amazing show, right? And at the very end, like the leader of the group, Hannibal, he always has like a cigar in his mouth. And at the end of the episode, he always says, if you know, if you know the show, I love it when a plan comes together. Anybody seen the show? Wow, like fourth people. Okay, so no wonder. It's like, dude, this is like formative to my whole life, the A-team, okay? So... The A-team is about this, like, you know, these crazy plans that they put together, but all of a sudden, like, it, it came together, and there's this famous line, a plan comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. So for me, you know, as you grow up, like, obviously, you're not in the TV world anymore. Like, with life, I've also been trying to, like, look at everything, and every, every plan, every five-year plan, the reason why you go to college, the reason why you try to get this job or intern here and work up the ladder you know, with the big stuff or the small stuff, is I, I want what I plan to work, right? I want my plan to work and my timing and, right? I, I want it to all work. I want to, at the end of the day or the project or where I feel like my life should be, my hopes, my aspirations, and my time, I want to be like Hannibal and say, I love it when a plan comes together. My plan and my time all came together. But life happens, Right, and we quickly realize this most of the time does not happen. I think if we were honest, we would be like, most of the time, I'm like, I, I hate it when my plans don't come together. Right, that's what we, I mean, I'm not, well, it depends, you're relative. If you're 20, I'm old. If you're older than me, then I'm not old. But the longer that I live, I'm 34, so take it as you, you want it. But the longer I live, uh, the more. I feel like I find, whether it's not in my own life, maybe it's other people's, family, friends, people I know, that life is, man, chock full of disappointments and failures and tragedies. And sometimes, even when you feel like you're doing the right thing, right, you're obeying God, you're trying to like live well and be a good person, and like sometimes even when you feel like you're doing the right thing, stuff just doesn't work. Right? You just can't get ahead. Everything's against you. I'm sure you guys can relate to that in one time or another. This is Moses. Like literally everything I just said, this is Moses. This is our text today. This is chapter five of the Exodus story. Like <laughs> things go from bad to worse. When they should have got better. God had got this wonderful plan. Remember the burning bush? God gave this wonderful, amazing plan of how to save Israel. And Moses has been more or less following that plan, doing what God said. And what we'll see today as we kind of work through our text, that that is the opposite of what happens. So verses 1 and 2, as we start out today, Moses attempts to come before Pharaoh and communicate before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, this plan. This idea, these, these things that God has told Moses to let my people go. Israel's in slavery. 
They're in slavery to the Egyptians. They've been there for 400 years. It's brutal. Generation after generation has been in systematic slavery. And so Moses, this shepherd that's been in hiding for 40 years, he comes before Pharaoh and he tells them this, right? He, he, he communicates this to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's response is extremely negative. It's almost mocking. He says, who, who's the Lord? Like, who, who are you even talking about? In other words, Pharaoh is like, that's not even a thing. Like, what you're saying, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, told me to let two and a half million of my slaves go? Who do you think you are? This is what Pharaoh is saying here. He's like, Moses, you're, you're talking crazy. Like, you're asking me to take my whole workforce for some festival, for some God that I don't even know about. And so Pharaoh's response to this plan that God has spoken to Moses is, sorry, no. Like, that's not happening. And then what happens in verse 3, it's really funny if you guys picked up on it, but Moses is just starting to make stuff up. Like, what he's saying right here, God never said. He is totally backed into a corner and like, oh, no, this thing isn't working. Like, he's, in, he, he's before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the whole world, in the history of the world, and this isn't working. And Moses is pulling at straws. And he's like making up this story. I don't know if you guys saw that, but he says, Pharaoh, if you don't let us go to this festival in the wilderness, which there's never been a festival in the wilderness. It's just let my people go. Moses says, if you don't let us go to this festival, God's going to kill us. That was never said. God said the opposite. God said, I'm going to save you. I'm not going to kill you. You see what Moses is doing here? He literally is making stuff up. Like, no, no, free my people. No, He's making it up. He's... It's not working with Pharaoh, and this is like Moses has just given like this sales pitch, and it's gone terribly wrong. It's like a war cry that fell on deaf ears, and this is not the response that they've wanted. But it should have been, right? God said it would be, but it should have been. It should have, right? Maybe been met with favor. Doors should have been opened. Pharaoh should have just let the people go. That's not what happens, the majority of chapter 5, verses 4 through 18 that we just read, that Mo just read, Pharaoh gets nasty. Things get really bad. Like if slavery wasn't already enough, these people are being like crushed into slave labor. I mean, it's the type of like slave labor, like this is like building the pyramid type of stuff. Like, this is crazy. It's harsh. It's brutal, hard treatment. And what happens is, is their quota for the day of how many bricks they need to make for whatever they're making stays the same, but they're not giving any, given any of the materials to make those bricks. So it's actually twice as much work. We got to go make those materials, get those materials together. Then we got to make enough bricks and we got to keep the same quota. And it was already crushing us. So this is like, things like were bad, and then they're worse, and in verse 19 and 20, things like get impossibly hard. Like this is a bad story. Chapter 5 is the opposite of what anyone wanted to happen, specifically Moses. So what happens is this Pharaoh puts on this new decree, he actually makes it harder because he's just kind of like, 
angry. He's disgusted by this like Moses shepherd saying this random God says, take away all my slave labor. He makes it really hard. And then verse 19 and 21, children of Israel, the same people that at the end of chapter four heard this plan and like were so excited about it that felt that fell down at the feet uh, um, on their knees and they worshiped God over it. At the end of chapter four, the children of Israel, they're like, I can't believe freedom is at our fingertips. I can't believe this is happening. And then in verse 19 through 21 of chapter five in our text today, Moses loses even their support. Like they even say, what have you done to us? You've made this worse. We're not freed. We've actually got double the labor now because of you. The very people that Moses is trying to free, he's affectionately hurting. Like he's just hurt the people that he's trying to free. And what happens is a complete leadership mutiny. Like the people he's supposed to lead out of Egypt have completely said, like, God judge you. They've turned from worshiping God now to asking God's judgment upon this newly appointed leader. All ground has been lost. They've lost faith. And as a new leader, put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second, his his slippers, sandals for a second. There would be nothing more crushing. You remember the story of Moses. He was in Egypt. Bad things happened. He killed an Egyptian. He had to flee to the wilderness. He got a new life. He got a family. He's been in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd. Things have been pretty good. He's kind of a fugitive, but things have been pretty good. God meets him in the burning bush. Says, Moses, no, I have more for you. It's not just about being happy, being comfortable in the desert. I have a plan for you, and I have a purpose for you. So Moses literally has to get permission from his father-in-law, if you guys remember this, to take his new family, to take the, the daughter, his wife, and the kids back to Egypt on this crazy rescue mission. Total A-team type of stuff, guys, by the way. Got to watch it. But what happens is, is like Moses leaves everything. He leaves comfort. He leaves his family. Just his immediate family comes with him. He's a foreigner in the land. He is an Israelite, so actually he's part of the slave labor, or he will enter back into it if this plan doesn't work. He's brought his family into this now. He's not sure if anybody will remember him. Even though God said, hey, all the old leadership is gone. They don't remember you. You're safe there. He's still in fear. Maybe he's going to get killed for what he did before. It's already nerve-wracking. Like, I'm just trying to paint the picture. Like, he's going before the king of Egypt to save these two and a half million people. Things are good, and then all of a sudden things are horrible, and two and a half million people hate you. You're away from your family, you left your comfort zone, you got no job, you got no money, and, and slavery is at your doorstep, or death. This is the worst thing ever. This is like, there's nothing worse. The story has got so horrible in, in one chapter. Verse 22 through 23, Moses is at the end of himself. He starts questioning God. Why? God, why have you done this? Why have you allowed this to happen? Why have you done this? This should have never happened. And I don't know if you can relate to any of this. Maybe not specifically. But I have, man, I've been there. Where there's seasons of real high highs and then there's seasons of really low lows one after another. 
that you just feel like, you know, you can't make it, nothing's working out, you thought you were going to get that job, you thought you were going to get the house, you thought your friendships were unravel, you got family drama, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's seasons where you just feel like, oh, you're getting beaten down, and this is not how it should go, and this is not what should be happening. And you begin to really trip out and, and question, and you start asking God the whys. Why God? Maybe that's you today. It's all of us at one time or another. But maybe that's you today. God, why? Why? For me, there was a moment about a year and a half ago that, that I was almost at like the lowest point where I, I was asking the whys to God. And it was actually in this room. In this room, three months after the church started. It's New Year's Eve, Sunday morning. Some of you are here. You didn't know about this. I'm going to tell you about it. In this room. So for years leading up to that point, God was calling my wife and I and family to plant this new church. We've only been in church for about a year and a half um, or so. But for years, God had done this. And like Moses, um, through a bunch of different ways, he had done this. If you guys know the story, it was through answered prayers and people having like really prophetic dreams and really cool stuff. I mean, no burning bush stuff, can't claim that. But like amazing confirmation over the years and our community and people around us, uh, it became to, be, became to be very clear to my wife and I and our accountability and the elders and the other reality lead pastors that this is what God was calling us to do. This is his plan for, for our lives. And, you know, things were hard, like preparing to leave where we grew up and with a nine-month-old and a three-year-old. There, there was a lot of favor and provision. Um, but then we got here, and, man, it, it, it felt like there's incredible favor. Uh, prayer meetings and the community and the core team that God formed that, that is a lot of you it was amazing. And we started this church in October 2017, like I said, and it was pretty amazing. Like, first Sunday, there was almost 100 people in this room. That, that's crazy. That, that's amazing. But, you know, new church, people came in, checked it out, trickled, didn't like it, whatever it was. It happens. It, it, you know, it's not all about numbers, but by New Year's Eve, it was pretty small. Shrunk, shrunk, shrunk. And uh, that day in particular, New Year's Eve 2017, we had a really low attendance. Again, it's not about numbers. It's just, I'll tell you what happened with my heart. Including kids, including like Terry the custodian, the guy walking by, there was like 28 people. Seriously, like 28 people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's so much tied to, man, okay, God, I don't think this is working. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to die. I think it's slowly, slowly dying. I think, I think it was a good run, three months, good run. Somehow we can just go home. I don't know. But I, I really got to this low point of like, wait, God, like what happened? Well, I thought you told us we were, we were going to do this. I thought this was going to be a thing. I thought you wanted us to go plant a church. Seems like the church is shrinking. I listened to you. I feel like I did all that I told you to do. And less people are coming, not more. Again, it's not a number thing, but you understand. Like put yourself in my shoes for a second. And for me, I knew, I knew, well, I thought I knew, sorry. I thought I knew 
what it was to trust God before that point. Right? I've been a pastor for like a dozen years, and I've been stretched and been through tough stuff and counseled people about trusting God, and I thought I kind of like knew it. I know what it means to trust God, but this time, December 31st, 2017, this time in this room, man, it was the loneliest, most alone, very personal place that had ever been tested because there was no safety net. Right, there was no, like, I just moved to an island in the middle of the ocean. Everything is staked on this. And in my opinion, it wasn't working. That was my chapter five moment. We all have chapter five moments. That was mine. But God, what he wanted me to do in that moment was to continue on and to trust him. That's what God desired that I do, to press in and to trust him to, that he knew what he was doing. I know what I'm doing. And this was so hard. That is so hard to do when you just feel like you have no control and things aren't going well and the plan is not coming together at all. And this is exactly what God does to Moses in chapter 6. End of chapter five, Moses is like pulling the plug. I'm out. God, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to all your people? You didn't do anything. And in chapter six, God answers Moses and he continues to communicate his plans and his purposes. And in what Moses has to do, the only way forward, the only way of obedience is to trust in God's abilities, his word and his character. Moses is completely out of options. He's alone. No one likes him. Everyone hates him. People are cursing him at the moment. God judge you. But what Moses had to do is he had to trust in the process. Better yet, better said, he had to trust in the God who is in charge of the process. So Moses had to do. That was the only way forward. Because you got to see, God was at work in Moses, in Israel, and in Egypt, in far greater ways than Moses or anyone could have ever imagined. Didn't look like it in chapter five, but if you know the whole book of Exodus, God was at work. So many times we just see with narrow vision, with tunnel vision, our plans don't work, our life's not going well, it's not what I wanted at my time, and we're like, it's over. God, why? And God's like, do you know I'm writing the story? You're in one chapter. I have so much more in store. And there's lessons to learn in the lows and the valleys and the hard times. And there's lessons that can only be learned in that way and no other. This is exactly what's happening with Moses here. There's things that God was doing in Moses and in Israel, and in Egypt, and in the world that could not have happened any other way than through this hard chapter five. There was, there, there, you know, God was desiring internal and lasting growth in character, and he was desiring to do in Moses and others that only he could do through this type of, of suffering and trials. I saw a quote recently that said, most of the greatest gifts and deepest joys that God gives us come wrapped in painful packages. Let me read that again. 
Most of the greatest gifts and deepest joys that God gives us come wrapped in painful packages. And man, I wish that wasn't true. I wish that wasn't the case, right? No one does. But that is the way of the Christian because that is the way of the cross. Death, through death comes life. Right, we see this over and over in the New Testament, this idea that there's fruit, that there's, that there's good things, that there's character built in the midst of trials, right? The book of James, James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Even that alone is weird saying. Stop there. Don't even read it. Don't even read it. Be happy when you experience trials. This is weird. This is God's economy, though. Because, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and that perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says something very similar. We rejoice in our sufferings. Again, so strange outside of God's economy. But knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God love. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what we need to see here, we need to remember, is that God the Father is a loving Father. He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful and he actually does know what's best for us. And when he allows us and puts us through hard times, in those seasons where we want to say, God, why? You have to remember that he's our perfect heavenly father that loves us and knows what's best for us and is allowing to, that to happen for a reason. And for us here today, application, takeaway sake, we need to know that we will all have our chapter fives. You may be in it right now. You may be in it for a long time. This is a long chapter. but all of us will experience stuff like this. And things will feel like they're going from bad to worse. But we need to know, even God reveals himself as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. This is my name and my character. I'm in control. I'm bigger. I'm bigger than this circumstance. I have more story to write. I'm not done with the story. We have to know that God is an almighty God and his plans are better than our plans. His timing is better than our timing. It's really hard for us to get on board with, but that is true. His ways are higher than our ways. And I, what I want to do today is I want to exhort us to grab a hold of God's word and his promises and trust in them. So here's, here's two verses to, to leave us today. Psalm 37.5. This is for us. Commit our way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. God's going to do it. And then we all know this. Proverbs 3.5-8. Trust in the Lord with all our heart. And don't lean on our own understanding. 
In all our ways, acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. Don't be wise in our own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Church, let's trust in our God who is in control of the process that we're in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you that we love and serve and are saved by a God that is in control. That you are God Almighty, El Shaddai. You know what you're doing. You're writing our story. And God, even in the midst of of our plans failing or things going south or tragedies or failures or, or just brokenness, thank you that, God, you're in the midst and you're in control. You're never far from us. You're never away. You're always near. And as hard as it is to surrender control to you, I pray that that would happen now. We corporately say, God, that we are not in control. You are your God and we're not. We want the posture of our lives and our thought life and our actions and our speech to reflect that. So do a deep heart work, God. We want to be a people that instead of abandoning ship and, 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 our, and our lives are just filled with the whys, that we would rather ask, God, what are you doing? What do you want to do in me? How are you moving? God, you're God. You're in control. You got this. What do you want to do in me? What work do you want to do in my heart today? Would you do that, God? Would you reveal yourself to us as our God? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.